This is Search for Truth, and I'm delighted to welcome you to your Bible teaching program with Brian Johnston. I'm your host, John Martin, and today's the penultimate talk in this series of 10 programs. Again, I remind you that they're all about the pattern for Christian church life laid out for us mainly in the New Testament as well as in the Old Testament. In this series, we've been seeking to discover what God intended and intends for today when the New Testament Christian disciples began collective service for God. Brian's called today's talk, The Hope of the Hebrews Letter. So let's see what that hope might mean with Brian. Right, well, please allow me to introduce today's programme with a verse from Hebrews 3 and verse 6. It says, Christ, a son over his house, that's God's house, whose house are we, if we hold fast our boldness and the glory of our hope firm unto the end? Notice the word hope there. I'd like to distinguish between two different hopes in the New Testament. First, there's what we might term the gospel hope. Various verses give different angles on this, verses like Titus 2 and 13, which describes the promised return of Jesus Christ as being the Christian believer's blessed hope. Closely connected with that return will be our going to heaven, where Peter tells us that there's an inheritance reserved for us as a living hope which can never fade away. But I'd like to say to you that the hope in the verse we read from Hebrews is different from that gospel hope, which is a hope to be realised in the future. This hope in Hebrews is a present thing, which is clear from the fact that we're told to hold on to it. That is, to hold on to our actual experience of it now. That's what makes it different. We can't, week by week, experience the rapture event or the return of Christ for his church, nor can we yet experience our heavenly inheritance but we can already get involved in the actual experience and enjoyment of this Hebrews hope. Chapter 6 of Hebrews tells us a bit more about it. The hope is traced back to the sure blessing of Abraham, which is described again here, so that we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever. In olden times, a small boat would go ahead of a larger ship, carrying its anchor into the harbour. Jesus, as our high priest, has entered into the sanctuary of heaven before us. Our hope in him as a forerunner is an anchor of our soul. It's sure and steadfast and is all bound up with our present worship experience of accessing beyond the veil in the heavenly sanctuary as we come to God as his people now in worship. The context here is the Holy Spirit's appeal throughout this Hebrews letter in five major warnings that God's New Testament people, and the Jews among them especially, should not exit from the churches of God so as to go back to the old ways of Judaism of the pre-Christian era. If they did so, he warns, they'd miss out on the magnificent spiritual counterpart of so much of the Old Testament system when God's house on earth was a physical temple, such as that built by Solomon. It had an earthly sanctuary, its holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was housed, 
But the spiritual house or temple we began by reading about has its sanctuary in heaven, where we, according to this hope, where we go in a spiritual sense when we worship as God's people before him in our remembrance of the Lord Jesus and his once-for-all sacrifice. So Jesus, in the heavenly sanctuary, and the present invitation to God's spiritual people to draw near there in worship is what the hope of Hebrews is all about. This is quite distinct from the hope of the Lord's return to this earth in the future. This, we say again, is our going spiritually into heaven now in the experience of Christian worship. This worship for Christians, spoken about in the Bible, brings us to our theme of God's house. God's temple is the other name given to the place where God's presence is. When we find this spiritual temple mentioned in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17, and in Ephesians 2, verses 21 and 22, we learn that it was composed of the aggregate of all the local churches of God in New Testament times. False teaching, that is teaching which departed from the Apostles' standard teaching, could destroy God's spiritual temple, even as the disobedience of Israel in the past led to God permitting the Babylonians to come and ransack the previous physical temple at Jerusalem. We've referred to the end of Ephesians chapter 2 there, with its reference to God's spiritual temple in the present church age. And we should read that section. Here it is, as Paul writes to believers in the church of God at Ephesus and says that they are of the household of God, being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom each several building, fitly framed together, groweth into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God in the Spirit." You know, sometimes there's confusion about this ending of Ephesians chapter 2, which talks about each local church fellowship growing up overall into one holy temple. And by the way, that is the most literal translation of the original language in verse 21, as it refers to many buildings, not one, because it envisages local church fellowships, like that at Ephesus, and not the one mystical union of Christ's body. The confusion is that the topic here at the end of chapter 2 is considered by some to be another description of the church, the body of Christ. But surely more careful thought shows that could never be. Christ's body, the church that is, in other words all believers in the Lord Jesus through the church age, is never referred to in the Bible as a temple. And whereas God's temple, as 1 Corinthians 3 shows, can be destroyed, The same is not true of the church, which is Christ's body. The Lord himself told us that when he said emphatically in Matthew chapter 16, when speaking of it for the first time, that the gates of Hades cannot prevail against the church, which is Christ's body, surely ruling out any thought of it being capable of being destroyed. And what's being described here in Ephesians chapter 2 has a cornerstone. Does a body have a cornerstone? No. A body has a head, but not a cornerstone. What has a cornerstone? A building. A temple building in particular has a cornerstone. Back in the time when the Old Testament exiles had returned to Jerusalem and were rebuilding, there was mention of this physically, a chief cornerstone to complete the restoration work on the temple. Actually, the language of this concluding section of Ephesians chapter 2 is totally consistent. 
It mentions house, something that's built, having a foundation, with a cornerstone, made of parts which are framed or fitted together, and is called a temple, a residence for God in the Spirit. So, now, let's think a bit more about the insight that the one temple is made of component buildings. Because the people in God's spiritual house are separated geographically from one another and therefore cannot all meet in one place, that means that the one house consists of several parts, one in each city or town where the people live, each one a church of God. An illustration of this is found in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 1. It says Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to him to point out the temple buildings to him. There the Lord Jesus describes the one Jerusalem temple of his time on earth as consisting of several buildings. So this idea is far from new. Another illustration today is a college or university campus. Usually the departments or faculties for the different subjects are distributed over a wide area, perhaps more than a single campus site, but they're all integrated within and belong to the same overall university. To conclude with today, I'd like us to look in sequence at what Peter shares in 1 Peter 2 verse 1. Therefore, he says, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And coming to him, as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I wonder if we can see four steps there in the construction of God's spiritual house, steps which, as we think today of the other name for the house, which is temple, we can compare with what we read before in 1 Kings 6 and verse 7, when Solomon built its physical predecessor at Jerusalem. Remember, in our previous studies, we've observed how stones for that building project were cut or quarried, then shaped or prepared, then brought on site and added together, so that finally they could be built up as God's temple. By analogy, we may like to compare how individual living stones are made alive by being born again by the grace of God. In that sense, they were quarried at Calvary's cross. Then individual living stones, by reading, growing and experiencing the Lord, they are shaped or prepared for service. The Lord then adds them individually to the existing structure made out of living, shaped stones which have been aligned to the chief cornerstone Christ as head of the corner. It's all built on the foundation, which is the teaching of Christ, which was laid by the apostles and prophets in the early New Testament times. And so, as with the physical temple of the Old Testament, the stones here are again built up and established as the one and only holy temple. Oh, no.
I chose the hymn we've just heard to remind us that in our talk today, uh, Christians have an anchor in Christ whereby we can be kept strong in our Christian faith. Unbelievers do not have this anchor. Now again, as usual, I remind you that with this series there's a transcript booklet containing all ten talks, and it's free. So if you'd like one or more, please tell us, because some listeners tell us they use them in house group meetings and studies. So now I'm about to give you our contact details, so get your pen and paper to hand, because here's our postal and our email address. It's Search for Truth, Church of God, Downing Drive, Leicester LE5 6LN UK. I'll repeat that for you. Search for Truth, Church of God, Downing Drive, Leicester LE5 6LN UK. And our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. So, many thanks once again for listening. We treasure your interest in these programmes and we do appreciate it. Next week is the final talk in this series and I look forward to you joining us if you can. Until then, very best wishes from Bible teacher Brian, uh, studio technician David, our singers and me, John. Goodbye and may God richly bless you. <laughs> 